out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Well, hello. Welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, we'll be looking at some more of his letters, um, his letters to various uh, correspondents uh, covering the period August to October 1933, so roughly the autumn of 1933. Um, what's going on in these letters that's that's notable, just as context? So, um, well, once again, we have a letter, lot of different correspondents that he's writing to like 11 again so um <clears throat> quite a few people uh to cover um but in some of these cases not too much to say about it so that's that's um in fact i, I think there's like three letters here that really stand out as pretty important so one is a follow-up to the cut to uh to the letters to jay vernon shay that he was writing and we looked at writing earlier in the year and we looked at them in the last episode these were really covering fascism and the rise of hitler so it's really a good window into Lovecraft's initial response to the rise of Adolf Hitler. And we have even a, a, like a more important letter, I think, in, in this set. Um, we have an interesting one about religion and religion in the machine age to Helen Sully. Um, I think those are the two main ones. There might be another one that I'm missing. Oh, the other thing to say about this set of letters is that he took another trip to Quebec um, during the fall of 1933, and there's a lot of commentary on that. We know from earlier letters how much he loved visiting Quebec and what, um, how much he thinks Quebec really is an example of an antiquarian city in the Americas, something kind of holding on to old, especially 18th century roots. In fact, he brings that up in his discussion of, uh, of, of Hitler in a, in, a, in a rather clever way. So, anyways, uh, let's start with uh, a couple letters to Natalie uh, H. Woolley. I think she came up uh, last time, um, and so uh, I think she, she's another younger writer who's beginning to work into weird fiction and those kinds of things and, and getting advice from Lovecraft. So, the first of these letters is dated August 6, 1933, and this is essentially a, a warning against her writing weird fiction. Uh, he's done this before to other people, where he says, you know, maybe weird fiction isn't the best place to get into. One problem is it's very difficult to write and publish novels or novel length. And we're going to see later on in these letters, actually an example um, from Lovecraft's own life in which he was unable to publish a uh, a book-length work, a collection of his works with Knopf Press, and you know he's trying to make money at this point, trying to uh, trying to do some writing, but I think his revision sort of slows down. He's not publishing that much uh, straight up as a Lovecraft work and Weird Tales or other places. He had a hard time selling some stuff that had already been written, like at the Mountains of Madness wasn't sold till like 1936. So, um, and he's trying to get some of his work published in like anthology form, and he's frustrated by that. Um, and that just has to do with the nature of the market. Like nowadays, you know, short stories, there isn't the market for the short stories. Now it's the novels, right? If, and if you're not writing novels, it's harder to make a living. But at this time, really, there wasn't this tendency to publish weird fiction in, in novel length, or at least it was very difficult to. More often it was published in short stories. And if you read this stuff, 
you you're aware of this that a lot of what comes out are are short stories so he basically tells her there's better commercial options available if you're interested in making money and of course we got to remember that lovecraft often warned people in general against writing for commercial commercial reasons so there's a follow-up to this in on august 30th 1933 um in which he talks about the weird fiction mark in a little bit more detail so this seems to be a follow-up directly from the previous letter where he actually lists the journals or the magazines in which one could publish weird fiction and there's only like f four or five that he lists specifically including weird tales um, and he just says he's unable to really serve the market anymore right that he's kind of gone beyond the pulp magazine market but he's not quite acceptable to mainstream literary fiction yet and he feels he's kind of going to be stuck in this middle ground for forever. So it's it's something we've seen before. And this whole, all, all throughout volume four of the Selected Letters, we've been seeing this theme come up again and again of Lovecraft's frustration with uh, the fiction market as it is. Um, the next one I want to look at is, is to Robert Barlow. We only have one to him in this period of time. Um, another younger writer that he's corresponding with. I kind of like this letter because it shows Lovecraft reflecting on age, and he's usually pretty good on this theme. Um, now, the first thing he says, which, he, again, he says this to many younger writers, is youthful writing really, there's no shame in this. There's, you know, yes, writers will evolve and writers will change, but really the heart of a writer is there from early on in their career, and you shouldn't be shameful of that. It's just a matter of refining it and molding it into something a little bit better. So you know, go right, is, which I think is pretty good advice. Um, he says, I never hold youth and its transient defects against anyone. It has merits which amplify, which ampl amply make up for the undeveloped spots. And all of us old geezers would be glad to recapture it if some time machine were to make such things possible. As people grow older, it's curious to see how widely they vary in the amount of their youthful outlook and psychology, which they retain, end quote. And then he goes on and suggests that, yes, they retain quite a lot of this, and he actually talks about his own experiences. Um, and then he specifically talks about time's impact on a writer. And it's really quite good. He writes, time is really one of the most baffling and fascinating things in human experience. What it is that has created the 1933 HPL differing from the 1903 HPL. And can the 1903 HPL really be really annihilated when all his moods and memories can be recalled by the 1933 edition? I give it up. But there's a whole wealth of fantastic story material in the reflections arising from these things. I think of all these concepts inciting me to expression. The mystery of time is perhaps the most potent and persistent. End quote. Now, I can't, I don't think his later stories really explore this as well as they could have. I mean, maybe Shadow of Time could have, but he doesn't really do it this way. He doesn't use it as a window into one's own past. At least not youth. He actually mentions the silver key here as the example of that but you know it's really a you see it in some of the dreamland stories i guess is this pining for youth i, I kind of miss those stories actually um it seems so long ago that i that i talked about them but anyways this is a nice uh nice uh letter so uh next let's talk about the vernon shea letters and one of these is really a, a an important one the first though is, is a little bit less though it's dated uh, august 14th 1933 Actually, this might be interesting to some to some people, uh, now that I think about it. 
because he's talking about a story. I guess it's Shay's story. You know, again, Shay giving Lovecraft one of his works and Lovecraft commenting on it. It's called The Love of Fawn. And apparently this has the theme of homosexuality in it. And Lovecraft kind of runs with this and, and talks about, you know, the, the appearance of homosexuality in novels and in stories. And he writes, um, I guess it is true that homosexuality is a rare theme for novels, partly because public attention was seldom called to it, except briefly during the wild period, until a decade ago, and partly because in a literary use for it always incurs the peril of legal censorship. As a matter of fact, although, of course, I always knew that pederasty was the disgusting custom of many ancient nations, I never heard of homosexuality as an actual instinct till I was over 30, which beats your record. It is possible, I think, that this perversion occurs more frequently in some periods than in others, owing to obscure biological and psychological causes. So that's a bit, uh, that's a bit odd to, to say it that way. Um, but I, you know, I don't think he knows much about the science of homosexuality. Uh, Lovecraft is, is prone to, and he does it here, to talk about decadent ages favoring uh, the expression of, of homosexuality, which he unfortunately can't really distinguish from pederasty, uh, which of course was a, was a custom in, in like ancient Greece. Um, but, and that's a period he doesn't look back to quite as fondly as just like the Roman period or even the 18th century, you know, but that has its own kind of sexual revolution, which I think he wasn't too aware of and, and may have been shocked to learn a little bit more about. I was just reading a book about actually it was the 18th century. Uh, I, guess it was, I guess it was 18th and the early 19th century. It was a book of primary sources about... Uh, about sexuality in that period in England. It was called Secret Sexualities. And it deals with a lot of, of the criminality of homosexuality, the growing legal re regimen against homosexuality in that period. Um, but you don't need a legal regimen against something if it's not seen as a social problem that has to be dealt with, right? Um, but anyways, it's, it's kind of, I think this might be worth checking out, actually. Uh, this letter, I mean, if, if you want to know Lovecraft's views on, on sex. Um, and he actually talks a little bit about, like, homosexuality in like romantic stories and the romantic homosexual and how as well that comes a literary archetype and he kind of has some some ideas here which i don't know if they stand up um but he writes this uh i don't know how psychology explains them but we all know the sort of damn sissy who plays with girls and who when he grows up is a chronic cake eater hanging around girls doting on dances acquiring certain feminine mannerisms, intonations, and tastes, and yet never having even the slightest perversion of erotic inclinations. All of his romantic and sexual feelings are in the right direction towards women, and yet he tends to reflect the personality of the woman he admires. He makes a good husband and father, and seems to dislike other men in the long run, never being much for stag gatherings, and never seeming to understand thoroughly the gen general masculine reaction to life. It is curious how this type of sissy seems to be forgotten amidst the modern wave of interest in homosexuality. So he says that this is a more classical, maybe. I think he's saying this is a more classical archetype, maybe from the something he's more familiar from earlier English literature. So, anyways. Now, at the end of this letter, he brings up Hitler calling him Handsome Adolf. Um, so let's jump into this, because this goes right into the very next letter. We need to talk about. Um, now, all he really says in this section we have in this letter is Hitler's program is basically barbaric, um, and he deals with the question of 
of Hitler's Judaism. Uh, there were rumors of Hitler being a Jew, which I even heard when I was growing up. I don't know. I guess they start, must have started all the way back when he was um, rising to power. Lovecraft writes, I doubt if he is actually a Jew, though, for that sort of story follows familiar folklore patterns. It would be too aptly dramatic if he actually did represent the group he opposes. End quote. Now, the important thing to notice here is he defines Hitler as basically being an anti-Semite, right? That his primary characteristic is being opposed to the Jews, being a negative, right? Not having a real positive program. Um, but for that, for what he actually Lovecraft thinks about the totality of Hitler's program as he understood it, we have to go to the next letter he writes to Shea in September 25th, 1933. And this is not only long, it's, it's a bit of a doozy. And I was a bit frustrated last time because I had a bunch of these letters with, you know, some really just unfortunate ideas expressed by Lovecraft uh, things I was kind of sick of reading. And then when I picked these up, I'm like, oh, no, we got some more of it. But I'll try to um, um, be as objective as possible here. Um, he starts out here uh, talking about his the success of his Quebec trip. So he starts out um, small. He spent four days in Quebec, and he ends this with a once his silly, his, his always silly God save the king, whenever he feels kind of closer to his... Anglo roots, which I don't know why Quebec would do that. That should be more Franco roots. And especially that's what he seems to like about Quebec is it keeps its 18th century style, which would have been French, not particularly English. Um, but anyways, he also talks about Salem and the visit to the Derby House. So he starts out talking about some of his trips in New England and the region. So there's going to be a lot of that um, once we're done with this letter, actually, because that dominates this... this um, Autumn of 1933 are some of Lovecraft's travels. But he jumps right into this, his, his thoughts about Hitler. Um, and I don't want to get into everything he says because a bit of it's repetitive from what I said before. But I want to talk about like five or six things, I guess, about this, about this particular letter. One is he seems to really insist that Hitler somehow a barbarian is is his his approach is vulgar he's a bit of a vulgar showman at times he describes him that way he doesn't like his approach but he's like the people who are anti-hitler also don't understand like really where he's coming from and he's, he's just like what about him i guess uh, and so he's kind of cursing both the hit the hitler supporters and the anti-hitler right saying there's something in the truth is in the middle, which is a position I don't really like when talking about Hitler, uh, fascism. But this is where Lovecraft seems to be at this point in his career. Whether he changes or not, we don't know. I mean, he never lives to see the war. He never lives to see the Holocaust. Um, you know, but he certainly lives to see some elements of, of what Hitler's program was about. But anyways, basically it comes down to this old theme that he constantly repeats when he's talking about not just Hitler's rise to power, but he's been talking about this for, for years by this point. And that is assimilation is really not possible. And races may be different, but they're equal. Now, this is an important point because he'll often say this. He'll say uh, the races are different but equal, but because they're different, they can't mix. And maybe you can mix a little bit, you know, but it'd be so diluted. But you can't have wide-scale immigration or you can't have a really persistent, strong 
culture within the other culture. And I think that's where he sees has seems seems to have some sympathy with Hitler, where the Jews seem to be a separate culture. Uh, and he actually says in another letter, Germified Jews shouldn't be a, a problem. He doesn't see them as a problem. It's kind of the culturally other, right? So he almost kind of veers to accepting a kind of Zionism, although I don't remember him actually saying it explicitly. Um, but his point is you have the right to reject, or cultures, nations, civilizations have a right to reject imported cultural streams. He says that pretty explicitly. And he brings us back to the U.S. and he actually says recent developments in U.S. immigration policy, really beginning around 1924, I guess, uh, in which that more open-door policy of the turn of the century shut down. He had the quotas, right? The quotas based on more uh, traditionally... The, the ethnic groups that had been in the United States longer were privileged in this quota system, limiting immigration from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, Catholic countries, Orthodox countries, and, Jew, and Jews. And Lovecraft says this was a good thing, and this is so good that it will never be overturned. Now, it would be largely overturned within 30 years of him writing that, um, that, that restrictive era of American immigration Although you can argue it's still going on to a degree, it's it's not the quota system we once had. Um, so he's wrong about that, but he thought this is such a good policy, it's such a good idea that you know, no one would ever think of turning it around. So, so that's one thing. So he thinks on the cultural front, on this kind of ethno-cultural front, Hitler's right. But he still says the Nazis are fanatics. So it's he's always got he's always very careful to say, well, they're fanatics, and I don't agree with how they're doing it. But the other side's also wrong, and in reality, he comes down and agrees with the essential features of the fascist kind of ethnostate idea. So, so I'm saying his his hedging here, where he kind of qualifies his argument, is it's kind of bullshit. Because he, when he comes down to it, he seems to uh, largely agree with Hitler on this point. Um, now, in this same section, and I'm dealing with a lot of text here. This is a pretty, it's like 12 or 14 pages or something like that in the selected volumes, selected letters. In this same section, he goes back to the language of superior and inferior races. And so, again, I, I'm calling him out here because he'll early on in the letter, he says, oh, there's no inferior or superior races are just different. And they can't really mix, but he slips a few pages later and, and actually goes back to the language of inferior and superior races. Maybe I can actually find it. Quote, if Japan ever conquered Australia or the United States, it would be necessary for the Japanese to draw a rigid color line against the black fellows and N-words. Wherever superior races have absorbed large doses of inferior blood, the results have been tragic. Egypt is one case, and India present is still more loathsome extreme. The Aryans in India were too late in establishing their color-based caste system, so that today the culture of the Hindu is probably the most thoroughly repulsive on the planet. End quote. So he doesn't really surrender the idea of superior inferior races, despite saying that he doesn't. He does. All right. Now, he, then he kind of takes on two other aspects, he, what he calls the non-ethnic features of Hitler's program. And he deals with two aspects. One is uh, kind of the rottenness of modern culture. And Lovecraft basically says, I totally agree with him. Uh, modern culture is rotten and disgusting. 
modernism needs to revolt back. It's it's decadent. And yes, bravo, handsome Adolf. Roll back modern culture. I'm with you on that. Um, now, at other times when it was the Soviets doing stuff like restricting and editing culture, he, he says it's really bad for the Soviets to do this, you know, to interfere with normal cultural developments. So, again, I'll just take this to be just another example of his 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 hypocrisy on some of these issues. Um, now, the third element he identifies, anyways, of Hitler's program is the international policy, right? Basically, the rolling back of Versailles. And this section is actually quite long, and he goes into a long rant about how Germany was mistreated after World War One, basically repeating Hitler's line on on the Treaty of Versailles and German grievance uh, about World War One. And he basically says, "Yeah, I, I'm not. A, I wasn't a fan of Germany during the war. And if you go back to earlier episodes in this podcast, we talked about his attitudes about World War One. But now he's saying reparations are were were a bad idea. In fact, he says this is where he brings up Quebec again because he had just been there. And he says, like, had the British imposed reparations on France after the Seven Years' War, I think he may have said the French and Indian War, but that's what he meant. The Seven Years' War." You know, France would have been, you know, so humiliated and would have sought out revenge and they'd be in the same position as Germany. And they'd be right to try to roll back those those things. But my recollection is that France was pretty severely punished at the end of the Seven Years War in terms of territorial loss. So I don't know. So he sums this all up in the end of the letter with these three points, like the ethnic policy, uh, modern culture and international policy and he says yeah basically i agree with him on all three of these points but he ends the letter saying maybe the germans need a more moderate leader so i'm summing up a lot of text here and i think it's a really important letter it's probably if you take those two we looked at last time and this one it kind of makes a a three part we'll see if there's a fourth part a follow-up but he's really laying out his this is the closest we get i guess to his thought-out response to the rise of Hitler in 1933. So that's all I want to say about that letter for now. Uh, and that's also all he wrote to Vernon Shea in this period. So next we have a new correspondent. We actually met her last time, Helen Sully, um, someone he would correspond with frequently uh, later in his life. Um, very interesting letters. Uh, very different tone from what we were just talking about, too, thankfully. Um, the first of these, dated August 16th, talks about the thrill of seeing Quebec's antiquity. Um, he talks about antique versus uh, modern modernity. And it's interesting how it's like different people's perspectives lead to people focus on different things. So it's, it's, right, it's kind of a beautiful moment where he says like, oh, you went, you went here and you saw like modernity? Like I went there and I saw antiquity. And it's just how the same city can be seen different depending on one's perspective and background on that. Um, but he does repeat his fear that modernity is destroying antiquarian homes. And if you remember way back, he wrote a letter to the editor in Providence complaining about you know, the destruction of, 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 of historic buildings in Providence. So this is something he really believed strongly in. And he thought Quebec was a place that one could go and see antiquarian settings but it seems that Helen Sully when she was in Quebec saw you know she saw some she was able to see some of the modern elements that that Lovecraft was a little bit blinkered by which 
I think it's kind of cool. I think it's it's a, it's a nice idea of how how we experience a city. It really depends on our own point of view and our perspectives and our values and all that. So that's that's good. Um, next we have September twenty seventh, a very short letter to Helen Sully, just about uh, um, Sully's visit to Newburyport. I think she must have wrote a letter telling Lovecraft that she had went to Newburyport, and Lovecraft was delighted to hear this. And he actually uh, praised her and praised the city and had wonderful things to say. We know from other letters how much uh, Lovecraft himself enjoyed going to Newburyport. So the next letter to her is written on October 17th. Um, and this one talks a little bit more about some of his some traveling in New England, a little bit more in Quebec, actually talking about the education system in Quebec a bit. But this quickly devolves into politics, or not or in religion, I mean. So it quickly becomes a letter really exploring aspects of religion. And it, you know, when he says, like, religion is particularly dangerous in this machine age, I think that's the thesis of this, of this letter, um, that in this particular era, religion is more dangerous than it would be in a, in a, in a more traditional period of time. I, I don't know if that holds up when you look at like the religious wars of the 17th century. But I think we can look at what he says. Uh, he says, ordinarily I am not at all hostile to any sort of Santa Claus belief that anyone may wish to harbor, but of late the years, I feel that formal religions may cause much trouble in the period of social and economic readjustment, which lies ahead. All the powerful orthodoxies represent celestial projections of the now obsolete political order, hence our pledge to defend it against all change. With a mechanized world of radically altered conditions, great changes will certainly be necessary from now on, yet all the official faiths recognize the extinct fabric as sacred and blindly oppose any rational readjustment based on current needs. With the various mythologies dominant in the Anglo-Saxon world, one might form a scale based on relative obscurity. The least irrational is undoubtedly the very liberal theism. Uh, and he gives some names here. Next comes ordinary Unitarianism. And then he gives a whole list of religions all the way up to uh, like the Mormons and Christian sciences and Baptists and Methodists and the ones he thinks are really off the, off the bat and the least likely to be able to adapt to the machine age. Which Lovecraft is, I guess he's open to doing. He kind of sees it as inevitable. But all the, others, all the other times he talks about tradition and the necessity to hold on to it. I'm surprised he doesn't have a little bit more sympathy for religion. I guess he's just too much of a, of a, of a, of like a secular humanist to really accept, to, to give religion any, any foot in the door. Um, but altogether, some really nice stuff here about different... It's actually talked about this before in other letters, going back to even volume two of the selected letters, about things like the different... Uh, moral calculus, the different kind of cultural attitudes of Catholics and Protestants. Um, but altogether, I think a pretty nice letter. Um, the, the Sully ones are, are refreshing compared to the stuff he's been writing to, to Shea lately when, he, when he's, ta he's talking about Hitler and things like that. All right. So next we have a couple letters to Elizabeth Toldridge. The first of these is August 28th. Um, he talks a little bit about his aunt's leg healing. Remember, his aunt was injured, and we talked about that in the last um, episode. He mentions uh, a new magazine that's come out, a uh, fantasy 
fantasy fan, a new weird fiction magazine, I guess. Uh, and he talks about planning his trip to Quebec, which we, which we know from the other letters he would take. So he takes that in September of 1933. So he's talking about the trip to Quebec. But the main thing here, and this comes up in the next letter too, so this is what I want to focus on, is he says, really, poetry can't have like a political mission. He thinks politics is going to destroy poetry on the one hand, and he thinks poetry really doesn't have the audience to really assert itself politically in any significant way. So that's the main thing. I guess Tolbridge must have said something about the, um, you know, what what's the use of poetry, right? She's a poet, of course, but uh, he might, maybe we're talking about how can poetry be used politically or something, and Lovecraft basically doesn't, isn't very confident it can be. But I don't know if that's true, because if you see music, certainly music, which is a type of poetry, uh, has been used politically quite a lot, and it's actually a very popular genre. So I think he's got a very, very narrow look at poetry here, which is fine, I guess. Um, the next one we have is October 5th, 1933. He again talks about his aunt's progress. Um, he talks about uh, losing uh, his, he tried to sell a book to Kanoff and he got rejected. Um, it was pretty frustrating. In fact, he said, I think this is going to be rejected. And then there's like a PS at the end. Oh, I just got word. The, the book was rejected. Um, but here's where he kind of follows up on the fact that really the poetry is not going to be able to have that, that literary, that, or that political impact because it's just got too small of an audience. So I guess that's it. I guess that's all I want to say about those two letters. Um, well, we only have one to August or left in this cycle. Um, September 1933. There's not much to say about it. Um, basically, it's about his trip to Quebec. And he says great things about Quebec. A lot of letters do this in this round. He's He loves going there. He talks about the beauty of Quebec and the antiquity of Quebec. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. Um, next, we have a couple letters to Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, the first of these, September 11th, 1933, where he talks about the striking nature of Quebec. But this time he's not focusing on the architecture and the antiquarian settings and vistas of Quebec. Instead, he's talking about the striking nature and the, specifically the sky of Quebec, the striking nature of the sky of Quebec. And it's just a nice moment where we see him really enjoying himself uh, in the outdoors. Um, in Quebec, one of the most striking things is the sky. The odd cloud formations peculiar to northern latitudes and unknown in Rhode Island. Mist and vapor assume fantastic and portentous forms. And at sunset on Labor Day, I saw one of the most impressive phenomena imaginable from my vantage point on the citadel overlooking the river and the Levi clicks beyond. The evening was predominantly clear, but some strange refractory quality gave the dying solar rays an abnormal redress, while from the zenith to the southeastern horizon stretched an almost black flannel of churning nimbus clouds. End quote. And the letter basically goes on like that, exploring the, the beauty of, of the sky of Quebec. Um, next we have, uh, yeah, it's Clark Ashton Smith, right? Octo um, October 3rd, where he's praising uh, the coming of the white worm, uh, which is a story he wrote. I think I may have read that or come across it, or it sounds familiar to me. I haven't read much of his stuff, but that may be one that I actually have come across. But more interestingly, he describes a dream he's had 
and in a dream involving um, some of his friends. And it kind of works almost as a mini Lovecraft story. We've no, we know he's turned dreams into stories before. And we know he, even dreams he's written to friends and letters have been later published as stories. This one, it's too short to really work as a story, but it's got some nice elements in it. Um, so here's what he writes. I seem to be clambering over steel, steep tiled roofs of ancient gabled houses in a medieval town by full moonlight in company of some 15 or 20 other men under the direction of a young officer in a silken robe who shouted orders from the ground, where he sat on the great black horse. We were all in a costume which could not have been later than the 15th century. Hose, tight jacket, round cut hair, and peaked cap with feathers. We were hunting desperately for some thing of primal evil which was infesting the town and against which all exorcism had proved in vain. As weapons, we had a kind of shiny metal talisman like an Egyptian ankh, nearly everyone being so armed. We held our ankhs high in our right hands and so far from us as possible. After the la endless lapse of time, we actually nosed the thing out and began closing in on it with our ankhs, of which it was obliviously af obviously afraid. We, though, were even more afraid. It was a black, rubbery thing with black wings and a queer face like an owl's, about the size of a large dog. It began to cheep and titter hellishly when we scrambled closer to encircle it as it crouched against the huge stack chimney. One man with a great net in which he evidently hoped to bag it. Then suddenly it soared up out of our reach on those evil bat wings, which we had thought merely rudimentary and unusable, and darted drizzlingly downward towards the ground or rather towards our leader as he sat on his horse. The officer gave one great cry, but the thing was on him. As it touched, it began to call as hideously with its victims, so that within a moment there bestrode the great black horse, a nameless hybrid, in the robe and cap of our leader, but with the accursed owl-like black face and the malign spawn of the pit. At last, as we paused in a paralysis of fear, it put spurs to its horse and began galloping away, turning only once to emit that monstrous titter. Then it was gone, and I awakened. So, sorry to read the whole thing, but it's it, it does work as a, a little itty-bitty story, I guess. So, that's it. That's why we got the Clark Ashton Smith. Um, so, we got one letter here to Robert Block. Oh, this is fun. This is also about dreaming. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit earlier than the one I just read, though. September 1933. Uh, where, he, I guess, Block said something like he dreams only once or twice a year, and Lovecraft you know, his jaw drops. He's like, how can you, how is that possible? I dream all the time. I take a nap, I'm dreaming, and they're really vivid, and I remember them. And um, and he goes through, actually, the types of dreams he has. He gives a taxonomy of his own dreams. And it's just a reminder of just how acutely aware Lovecraft was of his dream life uh, and, and how he is, why he's able to write the dream one stories, I guess. Uh, it's, he had stopped writing them by this point, mostly, but... No, I guess he wrote the, the sequel to Silver Key, which qualifies as part of the dream cycle, I guess. Um, but he gives various descriptions of his dreams. And, of course, we've read some of his dreams, some of his uh, more memorable stories. All right, coming to the end of things here. Uh, so next we have two letters to E. Hoffman Price. Um, the first, these aren't that important, actually. Uh, the first one, September 10th, he just says he is not really writing general fiction under pseudonyms. He's not ghostwriting this stuff, um, which I guess is true. He did ghostwrite nonfiction, general nonfiction, um, but I guess he's saying he didn't general. He doesn't do general fiction. He can only write weird fiction. That's the point here. 
not even as a ghostwriter. Um, and he says the major ghostwriting, basically his ghostwriting has been mostly weird tales. Of course, we're looking at them in this podcast. So his ghostwriting is revisions. So that sounded like more like a response to an inquiry that Price had. Um, next, we have a little bit more substantial letter on September 29th, where he writes about uh, his Quebec trip. He writes about the waste of writing commercial fiction, and he thinks, and this is something, again, he's repeated himself on to other people. He said this to other people that if you just write for money, you can't really be fully creative. you got to write to really ex express yourself and to say what you want to say, and you can't really let money pollute your agenda. Otherwise, you're just going to end up feeding the market um, and feeding what the market wants and not really doing your own work. So he repeats this argument more or less. Um, and he actually goes through different genres and stories, and he kind of talks about their value. And one he doesn't like is action. And this is important because we know he sort of talks about this with Robert E. Howard sometimes, who, who does like the action genre and sees more value in action than Lovecraft does, obviously. So that's all we got from E. Hoffman Price. Uh, next, we have three to James Ferdinand Morton. Um, and again, these are these are pretty uh, these these aren't spectacularly interesting. I really miss some of the Morton letters from like the 1920s because those were really meaty, and they seem to really challenge Lovecraft. Um, we don't get those kind of conversations by this point anymore. But the first one we have is September 20th, uh, where he talks about a meeting of Price, Long, and Morton when they all got together. I guess Morton mentioned this, and Lovecraft regrets missing this meeting because it seemed to be a really good meeting. And, and he mentions Price going back to New Orleans after having visited the, the New England area. Um, next, we have one in October 33, where he just talks about autumn walks in New England. Nothing really too special there. And uh, then we have, oh, this one's great. This is, this is wonderful. Uh, it's in August, October, sorry, October 6, 1933 where he talks a little bit more about his fondness for the 66 College Street House. And he says, oh, the cats on the roof have formed a fraternity. He calls it a fraternity. He writes it in Greek letters, but it's Kappa Alpha Tau, of course, K-A-T, cat. And he actually imagines which cat is the secretary and which cat is the, is the, the like the, what's the bookkeeper called? The treasurer, which one is the president of this little fraternity. He's got all these cats around him in, in his house. And it's, it's a nice little moment. And you can tell Lovecraft's um, joy of, of being surrounded by these cats in this new house, which he loves. This, um, it's a nice moment. And finally, the last letter in this cycle that we're going to talk about is to Richard Ellie Morse. And not much to say here. He just says the festival doesn't hold up. And I beg to disagree with Lovecraft on this. I think the festival is a great little story. I love it. Um, but Lovecraft can say what he wants about his stories. They're his. All right. That's all I have for you. So um, actually made pretty good time this this episode. I think following that Vernon Shea dialogue with Lovecraft is really important here because this is the big historical event of 33. If you, if you don't include the election of Roosevelt and the beginning of the New Deal, which he hasn't mentioned once as far as I know. Yet, uh, it's the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany. And that would have, of course, world-shaking consequences that Lovecraft wasn't aware of. But at the same time, I think it's, it's, there's enough 
reason to to question some of his values and uh you know he's smart enough to know better i think on on this um especially how he basically gives a blank check to hitler's more or less regime just saying to his program saying more or less i wish he was a little bit less vulgar about it i mean that's what it comes down to um and it's it's really unfortunate we got the quebec trip which is nice we do get some nice moments in this this set of letters though so i think um it's not all bad it's it's really that that one letter really kind of uh pollutes this this otherwise pretty tame and 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 quite nice actually set of letters so um that's going to be it for now um the next episode We'll be looking at the letters from October to January 1930, between 1933 and 34. So the winter, or much of the winter of 1933 to 34. Look at another 20 letters. Um, we got a bunch to Clark Ashton Smith, a couple to Farnsworth Wright. I think there's a, there's a Robert E. Howard one in here. It's pretty long. I'll, I'll kind of skim through that quickly for you because we'll be taking a closer look later. A couple to Robert Block. And yeah, we're coming to the end. We're coming. You can come to the end of the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. So, but still, a lot of letters coming up. At least fifty or so to to talk about before we're done here. So um, that's going to be it for now. Uh, if you have any of your thoughts about any of these these topics that I've talked about, um, any criticisms or complaints or questions, send them to me at hundredpagescast at gmail .com. As always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. It breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say you've never known me stranger after sharing all your kisses